Well, we're going to continue our study through the book of Philippians, and so if you would, open up to Philippians chapter 3. We've been studying Philippians for a few weeks now, and we've made it all the way to chapter 3. We're going to be giving special consideration through verses 1 to 11. I encourage you to have God's Word open in your lap. We'll be referencing it throughout the message. Um, if you are in need of a Bible, we have Bibles available back at our communion table if you don't have access to a hard copy or a digital copy. And so this morning as we begin, we're going to be considering what is most unique about Christianity when compared to all other religions. What is most unique? I want you to maybe think about that in your own minds for just a moment. There are some unique understandings, unique teachings, unique doctrines that are true of Christianity, but there is one that stands out, I believe, above any other. We may be tempted to say that it is our belief in one God that sets us apart from other faiths, but there are still others that would be considered a monotheistic faith. We may think that it is our belief in Jesus that makes us unique, but there are others who acknowledge, at least to a certain degree, who Jesus is. There are some who even believe that Jesus is divine. And yet, that is not what sets us apart from all others. You see, as Christians, we believe all these things, that there is one God, that he's revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. But we believe most in particular that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that we are saved by faith and not by works. Saved by faith and not by works. We are not a works-based faith. Christ has fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. This is what makes Christianity truly unique and more than that, truly true. And this is what we're going to be giving special consideration to because it's not only a distinguishing characteristics, but it is a most essential element. For you to call yourself a Christian, you must acknowledge, it, acknowledge that you cannot be made righteous by your own works, but only through faith in Christ. There are those within many churches this morning, potentially even this church, who miss this important and critical truth. And so as we prepare to read verses 1 through 11, we'll be really dealing with two points. This idea of, is there any righteousness to be found in works? Or is righteousness found in faith in Christ alone? And so if you would, would you please stand for the reading of God's word, if you are willing and able. I'll begin in verse 1. Philippians 3, verse 1, Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, 
as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count, or I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of God this morning. You may be seated. And so here we have Paul dealing, as he often does in many of his writings, as we have recorded in the New Testament, with this idea of righteousness. Where does righteousness come from? Can it be attained through the law? And as you've seen, the answer is no, but it's worth looking at this in more detail. Because our tendency is to still fall back to our old way of thinking that there is reason to put confidence in our flesh in what we do, that it either helps or solidifies or establishes our relationship with God. And the truth is, it does not. We are united to God by faith in Christ and Christ alone. So let us give consideration to this idea of righteousness that comes through works or that comes through the law. How does Paul address this? It may actually seem like a stark transition from what we've been reading so far in Philippians for Paul to now be talking about evildoers, wrongdoers, those who would lead you astray. Oftentimes when Paul was writing to one of the churches, as he was writing these letters, he was combating false teaching. But in this case, Paul is in some ways combating false teaching, maybe before it has actually even hit the Philippian church. One of the false teachers that Paul dealt with often or false teachings that Paul dealt with often was this idea of a group of, of people who we call today as the Judaizers. They would, also, they would often come into the church after Paul and bring teachings of the law that what the Judaizers taught is that Gentile Christians must still adhere to the requirements of the Mosaic law, in particular, circumcision that these were needed to supplement their faith in Christ and to make them right with God. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul battles this teaching head on. It's in some ways front and center, the topic of that entire epistle. And it may not be as central of a focus here within the Philippian church, but Paul being bound and in prison or under house arrest far away from the Philippian church is almost writing them in advance to warn them of those who would lead them astray. And this being the most common way in which the churches were led astray. And I would say even today is most common. He begins to warn them. Because the idea here is that when you add to the gospel, you lose the gospel. When you add anything to the gospel, you then end up losing the good news that the gospel communicates in the first place. This is Paul's point throughout much of Galatians, and I want to read some of his strong words in this regard from that epistle. Galatians chapter 1, 
verses 6 through 9, Paul writes them. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who would trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. To preach anything but faith-based righteousness is to not preach the gospel. That is a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. That is not good news. That's a reversion back to a works-based righteousness that I can make myself right before God on my own, or that my works add something to my salvation. Anyone preaches such a thing, let them be accursed. Turn from such teaching. I'll read again from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 this time. Paul again with harsh, passionate words, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? The idea here, friends, is do we ever get to move beyond the gospel to greater things? The answer is no. What was begun in you by the by the moving of the Spirit, for you to believe in Jesus, in his message, the gospel. You don't move away from that. There's not a second tier or a second level. We live there as Christians. To add anything to this gospel message is to turn from it and to walk away from it. And so these Judaizers, they would come in and they would add to the gospel. They would add regulations, expectations, looking back to the Mosaic law with all of its ceremonial and even physical rituals such as circumcision, say these are required for you to be right with God. And Paul rebukes them. And the way he rebukes them here in Philippians is actually quite interesting. He turns the tables on them. You see, these Judaizers were very religious, and they looked down upon Gentile Christians because of the way that they had lived apart from their faith in Christ. They looked down on them, and they would often insult them for their lack of obedience or their uncleanliness, their failure to live a religious and holy life. And so these these terms that the Judaizers would use of Gentiles, Paul is now using against them. Look with me at verse 2. Paul is speaking of these teachers that would come in and add to the gospel, and he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is rebuking these teachers with their own rebukes. First, by calling them dogs. Now, sorry for any pet lovers in here, but the love that we share for, for dogs was not shared by those in this period of time. In fact, dogs were in many ways the most despicable animals that one could think of. 
equivalent to maybe vultures, that they ran the streets and they, they ate what was unclean. So they themselves were seen as the most unclean and repulsive nuisance of animals. And the Jews would often call Gentiles dogs based on their uncleanliness, that they did not keep the dietary laws that God had laid out in his Old Testament. And so to call somebody who was a dog was quite insulting. But yet here, Paul calls these Judaizers dogs, that they are unclean because they have not fully trusted in the cleansing power of Christ's blood. They're putting their confidence in the flesh their obedience to rules and regulations, and not confidence in Christ's cleansing sacrifice. So they themselves are the dogs. These Judaizers would often call people evildoers for breaking God's holy commandments. Yet here Paul calls them the evildoers, because these Judaizers do not keep the law themselves, and they teach what is contrary to the gospel. Thus, leading people astray, which in God's eyes is one of the most evil things a person can do, to throw hindrances, blockades for those who are coming to Christ. Jesus had harsh words for similar leaders in the Jewish faith in Matthew 23, verses 13 through 15. Jesus says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when uh, he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Your teaching of works-based righteousness is closing the door of God's kingdom to these people, is making them more of a child of hell instead of making them more righteous they walk in greater wickedness because they walk further from the Lord. Lastly, Paul calls them mutilators. It was common practice in some of these other ancient religions as people would, would worship these, these pagan gods that they thought that by mutilating their flesh, by inflicting injuries upon themselves, that they could compel the gods to take action to hear their cries. This is recorded in scripture, maybe most famously if you're familiar with um, the battle of the pagan gods versus the one true God at Mount, at Mount Carmel. You saw that those priests were filleting their flesh, crying out in desperation for fire to come down, but to no avail. And so the Judaizers looked down on these pagan practices of marking one's flesh and mutilating one's flesh, but their trust in the physical sign of circumcision had become in many ways no different. Though God had instructed them that this would be a sign of the covenant, they were putting more faith in the sign than the person who gave the sign and how he revealed himself to fulfill all things in Christ. Inward signs are always more important than the outward sign. Romans 2, Paul would write elsewhere, verses 28 through 29, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. They put too much, sign, too much emphasis on the external sign that they lost track of what it was meant to point us to in the, first place, in the first place, which was an inward faith towards God and what he has done. 
And so their rebukes were turned around on them. And now we see later that their judgments are going to be turned around on them. Remember, these Judaizers, they're teaching reasons to place confidence in the flesh. And they had certain standards that they were using to evaluate people's holiness, righteousness, how good their standing was before God. And Paul, who was putting all of his confidence not in the flesh, but in his faith, uses their own standards to cast judgment upon them. This may be a confusing part of Scripture, but when you understand what Paul is doing, he's essentially using their own requirements against them to show that their righteousness is not enough. Verse 3 of Philippians. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And so here he is going through the standards, the teachings, the rulings that these Judaizers would have to, to say whether or not someone was right before God. And Paul says, I have met all of these better than any of you ever could. And so what were those things? If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day. That's a weird thing to brag about, is it not? In our context, yes. But in Paul's, no. That according to the Levitical law, even as it was instituted in Genesis with Abraham and his descendants, circumcision was to take place of every male on the eighth day. You had one chance to make that cut off. And Paul says, I am one of the few who can boast that I was indeed circumcised on the eighth day. No Gentile convert can boast about this because even in their conversion, their circumcision, as you understand, would come much later. But even other Jews may not have been able to boast in this regard, but not Paul. Paul also points to his bloodline that he himself is an Israelite of the people of Israel. More than that, of the tribe of Benjamin. You may be familiar with the people of Israel it consisted of 12 tribes, and Benjamin was a tribe that maybe had more to boast about than some of the others. First and foremost, Benjamin, as the son of the patriarch, was the favored son, the only one to be born in the promised land. And so there's maybe some uniqueness there. But more than that, as God, through his covenant, promised that a Messiah would come from Judah, and as the kingdom split, the tribe of Benjamin was the only one to remain faithful to the tribe of Judah. First king of Israel, although we look at him as not quite a good king, came from the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul has the right credentials according to his birth. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He's an Israelite. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. And he goes on to say he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning that these are not just things that he's born with, but he has adopted and kept this way of life fervently. You got to remember, this is a time in which the Romans are ruling much of the world, that people are adopting the values and the systems of the Romans. People are being Hellenized, is what it was called. And Paul is one of those who had resisted that and stayed true to his roots, still fluent and schooled in all matters of history and even language in Hebrew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He stood above the rest. And so these are things intrinsic to who he was, how he was born, but then he goes on to list 
accomplishments, that he was a Pharisee. You may not know who the Pharisees were, but they were the strictest religious sect and most influential party in all of Judaism. That with regards to their teaching and their observance of the law, they stood above the rest and had grown in power and influence as a result. And so he was part of this influential group. He was zealous and passionate and winsome as he furthered the cause of pharisaicalism. And he even goes on to say that as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. Now, what could this possibly mean? Let us not notice, or let us notice that he says he's not innocent, but he is blameless. That according to the teachings of the law, not only did you have to adhere to them, and he's basically saying, I adhered to all aspects of the law. Everything that you have taught, I have done better than all of you. And for the ways in which I haven't done things through the sacrificial system, I have become blameless. And so by their own standards, Paul puts them to shame in his previous way of life prior to Christ. That I was the greatest among you. And even the greatest among you could not attain righteousness this way. I remind you of what, you, what we read earlier in James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Paul may have been more righteous than other men, but Paul was not righteous because he did not keep the whole law. He could never claim that. No one could ever claim that. So how then can we obtain righteousness? If this man, with all these credentials, native to who he was and his ethnicity and his birth and also his accomplishments, if he could not attain righteousness through these things, through confidence in the flesh, then how can anyone? And I think that's the point that Paul is making here. He says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. All these accomplishments that he has listed are rubbish. They accomplish nothing in bringing him closer to the Lord. And this is strong language, rubbish. But these are some of the most valuable things, according to these Judaizers and other Pharisees, that a person could have. And he is saying they are rubbish. What is understood here is that they are like manure or excrement or even human feces. That they are repulsive because they are us trying to earn our way back to God. And we simply cannot do that. You see, following Jesus comes at a cost that we have to turn away from all these things in the world, all these ways in which we seek to put confidence in our own flesh, in our own accomplishments, in who we are. We have to turn from those things to the point that we can say they are rubbish in comparison to coming to Christ. 
However, many of us want all the benefits that there are in Christ while still maintaining the benefits of this world or our flesh. Came across an interesting video from another pastor online. I don't know who he was, probably one of those viral, real videos, whatever it may be on social media, but there was a powerful illustration. And I'm not going to do it for you today because it looked dangerous. But essentially, he had two A-frame ladders. And he said, I can climb both these ladders at the same time, putting one foot on this side, one foot on this side. And you saw him rising to a certain point. But you know what? He could only get halfway. Couldn't get to the top because as these ladders rose higher, they began to go in different directions from one another. In order to get all the way to the top, in order to achieve the goal, he had to turn from one and fully trust in the other, placing all his weight, all his trust on one. And the illustration here is that we sometimes try to climb both ladders, putting confidence in the flesh, but also turning to Christ. And as we seek to trust in both, we're going to reach a point where we can't go any further. And Paul is telling us, let us turn from trusting in our flesh, in the law, in our works, and turn to Christ, putting both hands, both feet on that, that we may gain him. Because until we do that, we're either be going the completely wrong direction or we're just going to be stuck where we are. So the question then becomes, which one are we going to choose? Verse 3, I'll read again. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Put no confidence in the flesh. This is what you and I need to do, brothers and sisters in Christ. To Put no confidence in the flesh. We may be tempted to put confidence in some of the same things that these people were teaching that we ought to put confidence in to put confidence in some sort of ritual, whether it be our church attendance, our baptism, or even our taking of communion. Do these things add to our salvation? No. They're reminders of what God has already done through Jesus. Put your confidence in him and not in what you're doing. Do not put any confidence in your ethnicity, who you are, how you were raised or, or born, it's painful, but many people confuse the idea of being an American and being a Christian as if they are the same thing. They are not. We are citizens of heaven, first and foremost. Don't put confidence in your rank or your accomplishments. You may be impressive by worldly standards and what you do in your career, what you have achieved, but that does not commend you to God. What Christ has done, what he has achieved, commends you to him. Don't put confidence in your traditions. Whether they came from your family as you were raised in faith, maybe you're trusting that I've, I've been raised in a Christian home. Of course, I'm right with God. Have you personally trusted in Christ as your Savior? Don't put your confidence in traditions. Don't put your confidence in rule-keeping, that you live a moral life, that you're mostly a good person. We've heard it read and even seen it this morning. There is no one good, no, not one. Don't put your confidence in your zeal and your passion. You may be passionate about something. You may be sincere about something. But you can also be sincerely wrong. 
The world will tell us that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere in your beliefs. And scripture says, no, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Be zealous about that by all means. But your zealousness, your sincerity to false things cannot win you salvation. And don't put confidence in your obedience to the law. The standard is perfection. God's law is good. It is a gift. But when we put our trust in our ability to keep it more than Christ, then it becomes a hindrance. It's another way in which we put confidence in the flesh. Our confidence is to be in Christ, and that is how we obtain righteousness before God. And so let us now give special consideration to that. Righteousness by faith. Righteousness by faith. Verse 9, I'll read it for you once again. It says, And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's critical for us to understand. Righteousness does not come by works of the law. We do not have a righteousness of our own. The only person to keep God's law perfectly, without mistake, without transgression, without misstep, has been Christ Jesus our Lord. That he fulfilled it, he walked blameless and innocent before God. And the only way to obtain that accomplishment, that standard, is through faith in him. This is what happens as a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus. Your guilt of God's law is taken and placed upon Jesus. And all of God's punishment for your sin is poured out on him on the cross. Also, Christ's perfect obedience and perfect righteousness of the law is taken and placed on you because of your faith in him, that we obtain his righteousness and he takes our sin. And the way that happens is through faith, believing in him, trusting in him. And this is where our confidence comes from. Because if Christ has done it, then it indeed is done. And I am now free to walk in righteousness. Not having that cloud of guilt over my shoulder, that as I stumble, yes, to, to have holy repentance, to turn from that sin, but knowing that I can have confidence to still approach God's throne because Christ has paid it all. And that I'm credited with his obedience. And that never changes as we are united with him in faith. These are the rewards of a faith-based righteousness, confidence to come before God. Works-based faith has no reason for confidence. Because there's always that possibility of stumble or fall. And so we have that as a reward of our faith in Christ, the confidence to come before him in worship. But Paul speaks of a few other things here. In verse 10, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 
not only receive his righteousness, but we receive the power of his resurrection. And when I see this being fulfilled in two ways, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you to conform you to his image. That we as a people unable to keep God's laws, we've put our faith and trust in Jesus, have a new ability, a new capacity through God's spirit living in us to walk righteously, to obey the laws in ways that in the flesh were impossible, but in Christ are possible. That this is a demonstration of the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that God is now making you into the image of his son, even now. Paul speaks about this in Romans 8, 10 through 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life, is, is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That we experience new life with Christ now. He's making you more alive even now, and we await the future hope of a resurrection body and dwelling with the Lord forever. Secondly, another benefit is that we share in his sufferings. Paul has spoke of this particular topic often in Philippians, that we get to share in Christ's sufferings. This is part of our salvation that Christ demonstrated that his obedience before God resulted in him becoming a servant, even a servant unto death. Look with me at Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That as we follow God, as we experience new life, as God's salvation is being worked out in you through his spirit, we follow in this as well, that we share in his sufferings. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This is one of the ways in which we share in the fellowship with God that we as Christians can rejoice in our suffering because God uses it for a purpose to conform us more into his image. And lastly, the great reward of our salvation is knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. Jesus. Verse 10, that I may know him. Jesus, in describing what salvation was, what eternal life is, John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is what we receive as we receive righteousness by faith alone. Most importantly, it's not our forgiveness, it's not our resurrection, it is our fellowship with Jesus. There's a powerful illustration shared by another pastor that I will just read with you because his words are crafted far better than I can craft my own. This is an illustration from John Piper in talking about what is our greatest benefit in the gospel. John Piper once made the case in a sermon that forgiveness is not the highest good of the gospel. God is. When I sin against my wife, it is good and natural to want forgiveness. But why do I want to be forgiven? The answer is not some benefit my wife brings, such as making supper or washing the clothes. How would my wife respond if I said, I need you to forgive me so that you will make my supper? Why do I want to be forgiven? Because I want my wife back. I want her. Why do you want to be forgiven? 
Paul says we, we should want to be forgiven so that we will know Jesus. He goes on to say that some people treat Jesus like a ticket to heaven. However, you throw a ticket away once you get to where you are going. You wanted entrance into a place, not the piece of paper. Everyone wants to go to heaven, but not for the same reasons. Bad theology is often shown in false views of heaven. Is heaven a place that gives greater access to idols? Meaning that if we want salvation to receive the benefits of heaven, however we picture that may be, the seeing of loved ones, the enjoying of certain worldly pleasures, activities, if it's not to receive Christ, then we're viewing heaven even as a means to break God's law of have no other gods before me. You're trusting in Jesus to receive these other things and not to receive him. May our greatest desire be to have him and not these things, that this is our reward. This is what righteousness by faith gives you. It gives you Jesus, a personal, ongoing, eternal relationship and fellowship with Christ our Savior that you and I ought to look forward to this most of all. And so as we prepare to conclude, I want us to contemplate a couple of questions. Are you still putting confidence in the flesh and seeking righteousness that comes from the law? We've talked about different ways that we could do that, who we are, what our traditions are, our obedience to good morals or to God's law. Are we seeking confidence in the flesh. Commend ourselves before God. Remember, there is no one good except for Jesus. And to put your faith in any of these other things is to put your faith in something that does not last. To move away from the gospel to greater things is to lose the gospel and to lose your fellowship with Christ. Let us trust in him alone understanding that we were created to be in relationship with him, that our sins have separated us from him, that there are not enough good deeds that you could do to wash away or make clean your already, your already disobedience. But this is what Jesus did, that he came, he obeyed God's law perfectly, and he paid the price for your disobedience on the cross. It wasn't just a physical death, it was the spiritual wrath of God being poured out upon him to the point that there is now no more wrath left if we trust in him and him alone. Not him and our good works, not him and our church attendance, not him or fill in the blank, but him alone. And God works through that same power that rose Jesus from the dead in your life starting right then to make you more like him. And we await the day that we will go to be with him or that he will come and make all things new. Put your confidence in the gospel. Secondly, are you looking to the rewards of salvation or to Christ? Are you sharing in that resurrection power? Are you sharing in the sufferings of Christ? Are you looking forward to be reunited with him? Or are you climbing that ladder trying to have both things at the same time? Turn from the things of this world and turn to Jesus. Experience what true fellowship is with him through faith. I want to end by, by praying as we often do.
but with a particular emphasis. You've seen as you've attended our, our services that one of the ways in which we like to practice prayer before God is to let the scriptures guide our prayer. To use what's written here to pour out our hearts before him. And so I want to end by looking at verses 10 and 11 and praying these verses. Verse 10 and 11 read, That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's expecting to either go home in death with Christ soon or to see Christ come again. But nevertheless, I am looking to that reunification with me and my Savior. Let this guide our closing prayer. Would you bow with me? Father, we truly want to know you and your Son, Jesus, who has worked salvation for us. Lord, we see it not only in the work on the cross, but also in his resurrection, ascension, and Lord willing, his coming again soon. Until that time, would we know Christ more and more, not just through our rehearsing of the gospel, but through our sharing in his sufferings. God, you are honest and truthful with us. Your word tells us that we will be hated by the world, that we will encounter trials, that we will suffer for the sake of Christ. We've seen in Philippians that this is a grace given to your children, that we may be like him. Lord, and that any amount of suffering in this life will not compare to the weight of glory of being with you forever in heaven. So may we share in his sufferings. And may we obtain the resurrection of the dead. Lord, would you, through your spirit, work new life in us more and more each day as we bring ourselves at the foot of the cross, Lord, to your word and to your son. We long for the day to be with you, for it is far better to be with you than to be here. But nevertheless, may we devote ourselves to doing your work here on this earth, and may we see you, Jesus, coming again soon to make all things new. We pray this in your holy and matchless name. Amen.